This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's Thursday morning and you're locked into Real Talk. Pack for you might be Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening. It might be June of 2023 when you're catching this episode. We appreciate it. It's Ryan Jesperson here with John Hicks. We've got a lot to talk about. The Bank of Canada has uh, the, the, the lending rate, the prime is up again. We're going to talk to Stephanie Hughes from the Financial Post in just a few minutes. How do you manage or how can you manage increased costs yet again? I know that this has been a challenge for everybody over the past year or so, maybe even longer. We've seen inflation rise and rise and rise. And, and for a lot of people with variable rate mortgages for a lot of people with lines of credit for a lot of people carrying credit card balances maybe coming out of covid this is a big deal and this means that your monthly expenses are going to be up yet again and i know you're trying to navigate it and so we want to give you some tools today plus a survey shows that 96 percent of workers when you get to those numbers you can almost say that's everybody 96% of workers, according to a recent report by JobSiteMonster.com, are looking for a new position, a new job in 2023. We're going to talk to career advisor Julie Bauke on the show coming up in about a half an hour's time. We lead this morning with a story out of our home province, our home jurisdiction of Alberta. For those of you that have not been paying attention... And I doubt that there's a whole bunch of you tuning in right now that would fit that bill because this is something that everybody's talking about. An explosive series of reports uh, from the CBC based out of Edmonton and Calgary, but in particular, reporters in Edmonton have reported that Alberta's premier or members of her staff have been interfering with the justice process, with charges, with the prosecution Uh, Following the Coots border blockade, you'll remember this earlier this year. uh, Obviously, it goes without saying that the entire nation was paying attention to a convoy that was traveling across the country that ultimately landed in the nation's capital in Ottawa and occupied that city for a number of weeks. At the same time, concurrently, uh, a number of people were blocking a border crossing south of Lethbridge, Alberta, costing, of course, the Canadian economy uh, hundreds of millions of dollars and causing huge problems. Charges laid included conspiracy conspiracy to commit murder. Uh, there were people that were talking, people involved in this blockade, talking about murdering police officers. The RCMP swooped in uh, in a raid uh, right around midnight one night and seized A whole bunch of weapons, ammunition, body armor. In other words, it wasn't just all talk. When Danielle Smith campaigned to become leader of the United Conservatives, she said that this was the type of thing that she would take issue with. She wasn't cool with a lot of the charges that were laid here. She believed that these people were being persecuted, that they were being discriminated against. She said that she was going to get involved in the cases of pastors that were being prosecuted for continuing to gather their congregations despite or in defiance of public health orders. And we're learning more about that story as well. So the CBC late last week, uh, in particular, a couple of reporters with, can I say, pristine records with solid reputations in the province go to print, as we used to say, with an explosive story, a story alleging that the premier herself or members of her staff were contacting the crown, were contacting 
prosecutors in an attempt to influence the judicial process. Now, the premier has gone to the wall in defending herself, in saying that she did not do this, that members of her staff did not do this. Now, why is this such an issue? Why is it so curious? Well, because a couple of months previous, not even that long ago, the premier said that she did do it. And we brought you that audio yesterday in conversation with Ezra Levant from Rebel Media. Premier Danielle Smith said that she did contact prosecutors and she said that she was looking into whether or not there was a, a common consensus, whether or not there there was uh, certainly a, a concrete belief that these charges were in the public interest and that there was a high likelihood of these cases being prosecuted successfully. In other words, finding these people guilty. Yesterday, this story advances further. Now, there's been some speculation. A lot of people, not a lot of people, some people believe that the CBC has fabricated this story. People believe that because the CBC is not naming its source, which is not unusual, but also after divulging in a report, the CBC acknowledging it did not see the emails that are alleged to have been exchanged between these two parties, the premier's office and someone involved with Crown Prosecution. The CBC acknowledges they did not see the emails, which is not a small thing. That is a big deal. There are people out there that are essentially suggesting that the CBC cooked up this story, that the story's BS. I personally find that very hard to believe. As I said yesterday, when the premier released a statement, Danielle Smith doubles down and says that the CBC's political interference story is BS. I said it's a hell of a story to report without a bulletproof source, which is leading to some pretty wild speculation. Now, some of you reached out to me, and and this is on me. This is my fault. And you said, there's no way. What are you talking about? There's no way that these reporters would have put this out there without a bulletproof source. And that's the point I was making. And I guess I could have worded it differently, but I said it's a hell of a story to report without a bulletproof source, which leads me to believe that they have to have a source, right? This isn't the type of thing. This is the furthest thing from the type of story that a veteran reporter, let alone two or three of them, let alone a reputable news outlet, would go and publish without an absolute assurance that it was true. So yesterday... From the premier's desk, a statement says the CBC published a defamatory article. That is not a small word to use, especially on the premier's letterhead. That's a shot across the bow. That's a warning. That's a signal of intent. A defamatory article, says the premier, containing baseless allegations that the premier's office staff had sent a series of emails to Alberta Crown prosecutors. Again, I feel like we need to see red flags. I feel like we need to pay attention to the details. What if it wasn't emails? What if it was text? What if it was phone calls? What if it was DMs? What if it was in-person conversations? The story, a series of emails, quote, to Alberta Crown prosecutors concerning charges related to the Coots protest and other pandemic-related matters, says the statement. The CBC admitted it had not seen any of the emails. The article was then used and editorialized by the official opposition, obviously, to smear the reputations of the premier, her staff, Alberta Crown prosecutors, and the Alberta Public Service. Says the statement released yesterday, the premier calls on the CBC to retract its outrageous story 
And further, that the CBC and the official opposition apologized to the premier. That's not happening. They also want an apology to everybody else, Crown prosecutors, the public service, for the damage caused to their reputations and that of Alberta's justice system. You see how this statement is uh, looking to align the premier and Alberta prosecutors together as one? We deserve an apology, says the Premier's office, and so does the Crown Prosecutor's office, and so does the Alberta Public Service, because we're all in this together. Goes on to say, after taking office, the Premier and her staff had several discussions with the Ministry of Justice requesting an explanation of what policy options were available for this purpose. She promised she was going to do it. That's not a surprise, and it's not a secret. She made no bones about it. It was a promise that she made, and she'll say it's a promise that she's keeping. But this is where it's getting murky because she's telling some people that she did do it and she's telling others, notably the public, that she didn't. Says the statement, after receiving detailed legal opinion from the minister to not proceed with pursuing options for granting amnesty, the premier followed that legal advice. It wraps by saying the CBC's allegations and insinuations to the contrary are baseless. So where do you go from here? What do we know? We know that the premier went on the record and said that she did what the CBC says she did. So the CBC reported it, citing an anonymous source. And let me tell you, behind the scenes in the Alberta journalism community, including court reporters, political reporters, editorial writers, managing editors, there are conversations happening right now that you wouldn't believe. People speculating around who this source might be. I was smiling yesterday when I saw on Twitter a lot of people starting to suggest that former Premier Jason Kenney is the source. I'm not saying he is. Quite frankly, I'm not saying he's not. For reporters like Janet French, Megan Grant, Elise Von Scheele that have broken countless stories of the past couple of years to go on the record with a story like this without being able to go to their managing editors without being able to go to their superiors and say, we recognize, we understand the magnitude of this story. It's not lost on us. The position that this puts the CBC in. Here is who is providing us the information, and here's the information we have, and so they run it. It is unimaginable that they would publish this story without having that, as I described it yesterday, bulletproof assurance. Now, the CBC cannot provide the email. And I want you to remember, this is significant as well. Journalists worth their salt will go to jail to protect a source. Journalists will not reveal their sources. There are many examples of journalists being hauled before courts, being hauled before public inquiries that demand that they reveal their sources. And any journalist that deserves the badge, will not do it. There have been some that have been jailed because they will not reveal those sources. But in a case of defamation, if the premier truly believes that she, her office, the Alberta Public Service, that prosecutors have been defamed, there's one way to set this straight, and that's to sue. Not to demand an apology, which you know is not coming, and not happening. The premier knows that. Whoever wrote her statement knows that. But if you truly believe that you have been defamed, 
take him to court, and let's let discovery handle this. Because when this is in front of the courts, there will be expectations of evidence. And I find it extremely hard to believe that the CBC would go to the wall, that veteran journalists would put their names on the bylines of a story like this without being able to provide at least supporting documents or proof. Sources, credible sources to this show, have assured us that this story is 100% accurate. It is noteworthy that the CBC did not see the email, but that does not mean that there was not correspondence. Now, there are some very interesting and relevant background details here. Over this past weekend, Albertans were told that there was a full investigation into these allegations that emails from dozens of staffers and hundreds of individuals involved with the Crown prosecution that those emails were vetted, that the servers were examined, and that nothing was turned up. But yesterday, we also learned that emails prior to December 22nd, per policy, had been deleted. The allegation of this story occurs before December 22nd. So if emails were deleted prior to December 22nd, what validity or why should we care about the results of an investigation that turned up nothing? Are you with me? Are you with me that if all of the emails before the 22nd of December are gone and it is alleged that this story happened before December 22nd, obviously there's no record of these emails. What's also happening right now? These same reporters have put out a story, and I know that I'm basically doing a huge promotional bit for the CBC here, but these reporters, day in and day out, are hammering away on these investigations, and they deserve the credit. The Premier's office pressured the Justice Minister's office. This is Tyler Shandro, who's in a whole world of hurt himself right now, to get rid of COVID charges. Ezra Levant is bragging about this. You know that that Calgary... Pastor, I'll say it in quotes, that pastor, Archer Pavlovsky, you know, this guy, the hot mess, the guy that was arrested on the side of Deerfoot Trail a while ago by police, Ezra Levant and Rebels picking up his tab. They're paying his legal charges. Well, it's, it's been revealed by Ezra himself, because of course, he's got his donor base to hit up, that he has been pressuring Premier Smith to pressure the Attorney General, that's the Justice Minister, Tyler Shandro, to stay those charges. So common sense would lead the average person to question if that's a fact, if it's a fact that the premier has not hesitated to contact the attorney general, the justice minister, regarding charges that pastors are facing for gathering their congregations through COVID-19, is it that outrageous to suggest that that same office under that same premier would also be contacting ground prosecutors or people associated with that office relating to other charges, similar-ish charges relating to the Coots border blockade? You've got to look at track records here. I want you to consider the track records of the reporting outlet. I know that there's a lot of mouth breathers right now that are going to talk to me about fake news and treason and patriots and all of that garbage. This message isn't for you. I'm talking to the common average person, the everyday person. 
that makes their decisions and forms their opinions on gut instinct. Look at the track record of the reporting outlet. Look at the track record of the journalists and think, would this group, would this outlet go public with an explosive story targeting the premier's office without an assurance that there was validity to what they were reporting versus what is the track record of the politicians, in particular this politician since she took office. It is not being disputed that the premier reached out to the attorney general, to the justice minister relating to charges that the pastors are facing. Is it outrageous? Is it unbelievable that the same thing would have happened with Coots? I don't think so. Which brings me back to the statement that was released yesterday. This is a bold move from Alberta's premier. Suggesting that the article is defamatory. Demanding an apology. This is doubling down. This is keeping the story in the news cycle. And I understand the political strategy here. Because Danielle Smith and her staff and her advisors are seeing some traction. They're seeing that people... Many people that are supportive of the office, that are supportive of the United Conservatives, that are supportive of Danielle Smith, are starting to create a narrative that the CBC has completely fabricated a story. And that without the proper due diligence and without the checks and balances that the CBC went and pushed this story out. And they're hammering down on that. They're pouring gas on the fire. I find it extremely extremely hard to believe that the CBC would have put this out there without the sources. And so this brings us to today. This brings us to the now. You ask, what is the point? My point is, if Alberta's Premier, Danielle Smith, truly believes that the CBC and its reporters have defamed her, have published a defamatory, incorrect, inaccurate piece of journalism, then I say, Sue, and let's let the courts settle it. You can let us know what you think. Send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com or hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag RealTalkRJ. That's powered by our friends at Park Power, Alberta's friendly local utilities provider. You can check them out online right now at parkpower.ca. We can virtually guarantee that when you take your business to Park Power, you're going to save money. Month over month, you can compare rates and see how much less you'd be paying. It just makes sense to take the two minutes to do that. But the real benefit right out of the gates is this bundling promo code. Our friends at Park Power have set up RealTalk23, which means that if you bring your electricity business over to Park Power, they're going to knock 50 bucks off your first bill. You bundle that with natural gas, that's another 50 bucks. You bring your internet business over to Park Power, you guessed it, that's another 50 bucks, $150 off your first bill when you use the promo code REALTALK23 at parkpower.ca. Also want to give a big shout out to our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. Looking forward to seeing them this weekend. I know that the team at Kubi has been working pedal to the metal because we're keeping an eye on what they're doing in BC right now. You know, they're Western Canada's busiest solar installer it's because a lot of these solar installers they'll be working on just residential or just commercial 
Kubi does it all with Tesla certified installers, a full service contractor for residential and commercial solar power systems. It's never made more sense to take your business to Kubi Renewable Energy. The Canada Greener Homes Grant right now offers $40,000 on an interest free loan. You can pay it back over 10 years. Whatever you need to get solar up on your roof, more accessible, more affordable, more reliable than ever before with Kubi Renewable Energy. We also want to give a big shout out this morning to our friends at Eden Landscaping. I met with Mike just a few days ago. This is a family-owned business that's been earning referrals and return business for more than 20 years. Why? Because they have yet to meet a problem they can't solve. I asked Mike over lunch, what's the one thing you want me to tell Real Talkers? He said, you let them know if they have a dream that has hurdles in the way, if other landscape designers have told them it can't be done, you let them know we can do it. I love it. I love how bold and confident they are, and I love their proof of performance. You can check out their portfolio today. Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. Well, this is a big story that's making news across the country. This may be the first that you're hearing of it, or maybe not. If you're one of those that's been watching your bottom line, if you're one of those that's been trying to manage increased costs month over month, and a big part of that has been variable rate implications for you, in other words, interest rates going up, you know that today there was another one. The Bank of Canada has raised its trend-setting policy rate by 25 basis points, which means it's up a quarter of a percent to four and a half percent it's the highest it's been in a while stephanie hughes is keeping a keen eye on this a finance journalist for the financial post and we're grateful that she's making time for us on this thursday morning steph it's nice to see your face again and thanks for joining us here on real talk well thanks for having me ryan Looking yeah. forward to the chat man oh man this is uh, it seems like every couple of months every few months we're seeing interest rates rise and rise and rise obviously the goal is to stifle inflation but uh this one i guess is it fair to say last time you and i spoke we saw this one coming we we kind of did yeah so there was uh, leading up to this decision there was debate in the economist community uh whether there would be a pause but then when we saw the stronger than expected jobs numbers and then uh inflation being a little bit more persistent than expected at 6.3 percent in the latest reading in december it kind of became clear that maybe they would eke out just one more quarter point hike before putting a pause on rate hikes and seeing how the economic data shook out for a bit. So right now, uh, to your point, we're seeing higher borrowing costs at the same time that we're seeing high inflation. So Canadians kind of getting hit with a double whammy here, especially if they have a mortgage. So what is this? I mean, for the average person, you know, the number one question they're going to be asking is how many more of these? Right. I mean, like people say, okay, a quarter point, like, you know, we're four and a half. Okay. We can manage, but people are going to go, hang on a second. It seems like this is kind of becoming par for the course. Every couple of months, every few months, we're seeing another one. What do you think we can expect over the next, I don't know, three to six to 12 months? Well, I'm going to draw from the central bank's own words and uh, from the economist community there, because they all seem to be in consensus that this will likely be the last rate hike in a while um, as they see uh, how the economic trends unfold. Uh, the central bank is saying that it, it's looking to kind of hold for a bit, but uh, they're not promising anything that they're not promising that this will be the last rate increase. But we have been kind of seeing that this would be sort of the tail end of that aggressive rate hiking cycle. And it was the most aggressive, uh, probably on record, because we saw the rates come up a cumulative 
4.25% since they hiked uh, last year in March. So yeah, Canadians are feeling the pressure. Uh, the bright spot is it looks like we're getting a lot of promising signals out of uh, the Bank of Canada's press conference, its communication, and the monetary policy report, which is something of a temperature check on how the bank feels about the current economic conditions and where they see things going. And where they see things going right now is that inflation will hit 3% by the end of the year and back to its 2% target in 2024. So on the price pressure side, things are looking brighter if we um, if everything goes according to uh, NPR plan there. Um and on the rate hiking cycle side, it sounds like the bank is ready to kind of take the foot off the gas as far as going up with the rates there. When you talk about 3% inflation, I mean, it, it, that represents, a, it would be a drop by 50%. I'm still trying to wrap my mind. I don't know about you, Steph. I know you've been covering finance stories for a long time. For me to see, even in December, uh, inflation still over 6% despite these rate hikes are is it taking you i mean are you used to it or does it still shock you every single time you see inflation six seven eight percent in some jurisdictions i mean people haven't seen that for years mm -hmm. no this is the, the probably the highest i've seen it um in well definitely in my uh, journalism career yeah. uh, or my financial journalism career so yeah it's anxiety inducing I, i'm with everybody else looking at this rate or these rates go up and wondering how the hell am i going to afford anything but uh in this case, yeah, it's um, it, it seems incremental, but you have to remember that um, interest rates and the hikes uh, have a lag effect in the broader economic financial system. So the way the central bank kind of uh, expresses that is it takes about six months for each rate hike to or the, the cumulative amount of rate hikes to fully work their way through the system. That said, we're still seeing some supply ch uh, chain constraints. It's getting better, but we're still seeing some constraints there. Um, and yeah, it, it's going to be difficult to see uh, how uh, that kind of unfurls, how interest rates, which, and to put it into perspective for viewers, the reason why rates go up as a means to bring inflation down is that it takes demand out of the economy because there's been a lot of demand. As soon as uh, the economy reopened, a lot of people were, you know, going out to dinner, getting hair, getting haircuts again, they were traveling. So that spike in demand meant that there was a severe mismatch between supply and demand. But now, with these rate hikes, they're hoping to bring demand back down so supply can catch up. But, you know, if there's weather events that mean that uh, leads to a worse off crop season um, and there's less uh, food capacity or food supply, then that's going to lead into that's going to play a major part in uh, grocery bills and the, the food inflation rate. The food, I, I mean, man, oh, man, we talk about this. It's it, it's like we understand that inflation has uh, sweeping impacts i mean to, to state the obvious but people really feel the pinch it seems in, in, in like they feel it acutely in certain spots right the, the grocery store the gas pump i mean obviously interest rate increases they feel it on their lines of credit and their credit cards th those types of things stephanie i know that these types of conversations for some people can be really discouraging some people will tune it out because, quite frankly, they don't need to hear more about the challenges they're facing. They're very well aware of the challenges they're facing. Are you seeing any bright spots? Like, like what, what about jobs? What about employment? Are, are you seeing some 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 indicators that, that some of these rate hikes could actually be working, could be paying off, that maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel? Well, I will say that, uh, it's, yeah, 6.3% is a high number, but it is a, a bit of a far cry from the 8.1% peak we've seen in last June. Um, that said, yeah, to your point, it's very difficult to actually 
pull back demand on certain areas. So people need to eat, they need to travel for work. So they need that they have that inherent uh, gas demand there. Energy prices, uh, that's kind of been leading the charge in uh, the declining inflation rates. But I would say that bright spot is we're expecting inflation to come down. Still a robust jobs market, but uh, the uh, the governor, Tiff Macklem, is hoping, or the central bank, I should say, is hoping to take some more steam out of the economy because the uh, high jobs demand is kind of a symptom that the economy is in excess demand. So businesses are hiring more people to bring more supplies uh, to, to the market so and meet the demand that their customers ultimately have. So we're probably going to see those vacancies, that vacancy buffer get eaten into. Uh, the one bright spot is that they're hoping that uh, because of this vacancy buffer, hopefully that the unemployment rate uh, doesn't grow by like to the same degree as prior recessions um, leading into this upcoming recession. But pointing to that jobs, uh, that, that strong jobs market, is, I still see it as a job seekers market. So if people are struggling with costs, maybe this is a good time to weigh their options and see what other employment opportunities in their field or other postings, um, hopefully that can uh, provide a, a larger salary to sort of navigate these rising costs. Might be a good ch- chance to see what their options are. Mm. I, I always appreciate when audience members chime in and, and, and provide questions for our guests. Sometimes it's on Twitter, sometimes it's in our live chat. And, and I like this one from Rose because just straight up, she, she just says, can somebody please explain to me how raising interest rates deflects rising inflation? She says, I don't, I don't get it. Can I take right, a crack so, at it, and then can you can you evaluate my response? Like, so 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 if I'm in class, is is am I oversimplifying that that rising interest rates make the cost of borrowing higher, which makes spending money more expensive, which makes people think twice about in particular big expenditures, which cools the market supply and demand ish, which then causes inflation to drop. Is that is that on the right track, or am I wrong? No, in a nutshell, that's exactly what they're hoping to do. Um, that's uh, taking the excess demand out of the economy. And we've seen a lot of excess demand uh, over the past year. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's it, it seems counterintuitive that um, the the solution to curbing price pressures is to create more on the borrowing side. But the hope is that Canadians will try to kind of retract their spending and uh, and then off the demand in that same function. So you actually nailed the explanation there. So the Bank of Canada also releases its monetary policy report, right? It's it's like, a, what is it, like a barometer kind of idea of on, exactly. on, on yeah. where these econ- the economy's at. The, the average person's not going to read this report today. They're not going to sift through it. But journalists like you will. What's one or two things that they're jumping out at you is especially significant that people can take away from that report? Well, the biggest one for me was the inflation trajectory. Uh, they're looking at uh, the inflation headline inflation reading re- reaching about 3% by the end of the year, uh, 2% by 2024. That brings it right back to their target. Um, and then also their language about just kind of looking at a wait and see mode, seeing um, uh, that they're going to really rely on the economic data and uh, let that uh, determine their next um, their next move there. I think the it, I would say that the uh, era or the the period of really front loading um, interest rate hikes like that surprise one percent hike we saw in July I believe it was I believe that's over and they're trying to thoroughly communicate that and make sure that um, that they can still achieve something of uh, a, a soft landing or a mild recession or just like to make it uh, to 
cool off the uh, pace of rate increases without creating too much damage to the economy. So those were some of the things that jumped out at me. One other thing I'll say is really interesting because this is a rate decision of many firsts. It's the first of the year, but it's also the first that we're actually going to, the collective we are going to see, get a better uh, look under the hood of what made these decisions possible or what went into these decisions. So what I mean by that is two weeks from now, uh, or two weeks from yesterday, I should say, they're going to release meeting summaries, which will actually show a summary of how they reached their decision to raise by 25 basis points. We've never had that before with the central bank, but um, this will be the first year where we actually get more details. I'm really looking forward to seeing what's uh, what kind of deliberations are happening behind the scenes there. Let me ask you this in closing, um, and I sure appreciate your reporting with the Financial Post. If you're just tuning in, listening, uh, live streaming audio uh, with the Mixler audio app, we're talking to Stephanie Hughes of the Financial Post. Last year, for the first time in its history, the, the Bank of Canada lost money. Uh, mm-hmm. No, it's not necessarily a for-profit entity, but can you explain to us in layperson's terms why that happened, why it's significant? and what it means in 2023? Certainly. So uh, what ended up happening was during the onset of the pandemic, they had to buy a lot of assets, uh, a lot of bond purchases there to essentially make sure that the market had enough liquidity, enough cash to make the borrowing environment more accommodative, to make sure that they were able to drop interest rates to the lower bound and uh, make sure that the economy was kind of easy going there. But the thing is, now that they had all these assets on their balance sheet, at the same time that interest rates started going up, the interest costs on those same assets also went up. So then all of a sudden they're in a negative uh, revenue position. But we actually got more details on how the Department of Finance and the Bank of Canada is planning to find a solution here. And what they what Macklem said was that uh, uh, Prisha Freeland essentially um, communicated to him that they were going to consider or Uh, make a legislative amendment to the Bank of Canada Act, which would allow the Bank of Canada to retain some of those earnings temporarily um, to offset the losses, because what they would usually do is remit these uh, earnings to the the federal government there. So to retain them temporarily, to cover the losses until um, this situation, um, uh, until the situation basically gets sorted out. But um, one thing I should say is that uh, Bank of Canada is far from unique in this issue, Mm -hmm. and it, it is expected to be temporary, and the central bank is adamant that this will not influence their ability to conduct proper monetary policy. Steph, for people whose whose mortgage payments just went up again today, uh, for people whose credit card balances are going to be more tomorrow than they were yesterday, which is kind of obviously how it works, um, for people right now that are that are that are feeling that tightening, you know, their their chests feel a little tight today. Uh, where's what's your sense of where this is going? What's your sense when it comes to future rate hikes and, and, and what would you tell what, what I guess what's your takeaway uh, for the average person that's going to see the headline today and, and and wonder what this is going to mean for their bottom line and where this is going over the next number of months mm-hmm. absolutely and I think we're starting to see um, those kind of cracks those anxieties and what I thought was very sobering last year was the Bank of Canada saying that uh, at least 13 percent of the total mortgage pool uh, those mortgages had um hit their uh, trigger rate, which essentially means that um, mortgage holders are only paying or only able to pay interest on the mortgage that they're paying. So if people are feeling the pinch, what I would say is uh, if your home is like if you bought at the peak of the pandemic, these are conversations I've had with a lot of people who are are feeling this anxiety. If you plan to live there uh, and you're underwater for a few years, uh, 
I don't know if this really changes your living situation. As long as you're not planning on selling next year or the year after, uh, then maybe it shakes itself out. But yeah, I can absolutely uh, see that um, that anxiety there uh, and that uh, implied reverse wealth effect. And um, maybe you feel like the the house isn't worth as, or isn't worth as much, and the mortgage payments are higher. Uh, on the food inflation side, I would say try to find uh, less expensive substitutes for what you're buying. But obviously, that's very difficult because the price of everything's going up. Yeah. Um, but I would also just point back to that job seekers market thing uh, aspect where if you're looking for maybe the, the uh, solution is a higher salary. So maybe weigh your options, see if you can actually get a pay rise via another position in the same field you're working in. It's a hard question. This last one I'll ask you in closing. I saw a viewer is curious for your take on it. You're probably going to say to us, well, it depends if you're listening from Vancouver or Toronto or Calgary or, or Halifax or, or for that matter, you know, Grand Cash. But what does this all mean for the housing market? Like if, if it, it, it's I, I talked to some realtors. Uh, I was talking to one yesterday at hockey. We're hanging out. And, and I said, how's business? And he goes, hey, you know, that was his answer. Hey, you know, what do you think? I think, uh, I mean, we've certainly seen the double digit declines in markets mm -hmm. like Vancouver, Toronto, uh, to a lesser extent, Calgary. Uh, but um, the major cities across the, the country are seeing that steam come out of the housing market there. And yeah, it's a, it's stressful. Uh, and the thing is, even though house prices are coming down, um, it's not getting more affordable because the carrying costs are going up. So yeah. this would take would-be home buyers, especially first-time home buyers, and puts them on the sidelines because they're saying, forget it. I, I just can't make it totally. work in this market. Like like literally, you know, people that are looking at uh, let's 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 say you can get a, a, a mortgage at prime, you know, even then four and a half. And I know that people yeah. that bought houses in the 80s are going to be like, you guys got to be kidding me. But still, but still in the present day context, you know, there are people that locked in four years ago on a five year term that were in at zero percent, that were in at one percent. And now we're looking at six. And obviously it's going to have implications on the market. I mean, it's just common sense, right? Exactly. And they're going to feel it when they renew. This is yeah. um, I mean, it's certainly the highest I've seen it um, in my years. Uh, it, my people in my age group, uh, this is the highest it's been for a while. So yeah. it's um, yeah, it's anxiety inducing and uh, people are trying to weigh their uh, I feel like people are assessing their family planning options a little bit more. Um, whether they can actually get in the market at all, uh, if it means that uh, that they're leaving the city. Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty out there, but uh, I, I know from a few real estate reports that they're expecting maybe the, the the bulk of the decreases had occurred last year. I know that's kind of up for debate. Some people are, ex um, are expecting that things might get worse in the housing market heading forward, but um, some people are expecting, uh, I believe it was Royal LePage, that, or Royal, Royal LePage was expecting that um, another double digit decrease this mm -hmm. year, but maybe maybe not to the same extent as 2022. So still more uh, price pressure, or sorry, still more prices coming down is what we're expecting, more demand being put on the sidelines. But this uh, is like, th this is the whole point, right? Yeah, it like is. What no, you're talking it, about, it, the, yeah. the impact is exactly what the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem's endeavoring to do which is mm -hmm. to get people double clutching and thinking about whether or not they're going to go, you know, spend 975 or 1.2 on a house that they can kind of just barely get into. That's kind yeah. of the whole point. Exactly. And the first casualty in a rapidly rising rate environment is the housing market. Yeah. Unfortunately for Canada, we're very dependent on the housing market. Uh, it's I forget what the percentage of the GDP is there, but uh, there, there's a lot of like it's a massive employer. There's a lot of people working in that sector. 
Um, and uh, it, it's caused so many Canadians to be, it's really driven up our household debt to GDP ratio. So we're a house hungry, house obsessed country. Uh, one argument that I found uh, pretty interesting was that uh, given the immigration targets that uh, the Liberal uh, government has announced over the next few years, that's expected to set some kind of a floor to the uh, house price um, tumble there because that brings in more demand. And th these are very um, dramatic targets. These are very elevated targets, I should say. Uh, what I would also say is that because people can't afford to get in the housing market right now, that means they're going into the rental market. And we are just seeing rent rates. That rent inflation there is going ballistic. So I think we're going to see more upward pressure in the rental market, especially if there's international students. Some of the stories coming out of that uh, that whole theme there is just bonkers to me. Um, and then I think we're going to see continued declines in home prices. But uh, there's an expectation that there might be some kind of a floor there because we're bringing so many more people into the country and they have to live somewhere. Stephanie Hughes is a finance journalist. You can check out what she does. Obviously, read her work in the Financial Post, but you can also check out stephaniehughesjournalism.com. Read about the work that she does covering topics like crypto, Canadian housing, and a wide array of topics in business news. A wonderful friend of the show. Steph, it's nice to see your face again. Thanks for your time. Nice to see you, too. Thanks for yeah, having me, Ryan. You got it. Johnny, she's like talking directly to you. I know. Right? <laughs> you you and Jatinder, you guys, have, I know you, I'm sorry to like just put you on the spot and drag no, in, okay. but you are one of the like millions of Canadians. You guys are two of the millions of mm -hmm. Canadians that, that have this dream because you talk about it and I love it. And yeah. you have a specific kind of property in mind. Yeah. And it's not a cheap one because you guys have big dreams yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But, but when all of a sudden the cost of borrowing goes from like half a percent or 1% yeah. to 6%. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And like, I feel grateful that we're here in Alberta, but I think about BC and Toronto families <laughs> and Vancouver and all these places where like we were in Kelowna and we found it impossible to go buy a home. Yeah. So it's just it's a really scary time. Right and, and we've I feel like we're having, you know, we do our best like we we, we want to like to this audience want to have like real conversations about real life. And it's like how to navigate challenges, how to how to understand what's what's coming down. Mm -hmm. What can you see in the future yeah. kind of idea as best as we can talking to expert voices. But when you're having a conversation every three months yeah. about how are you going to manage another three or four or five or six hundred dollars a yeah. month on your household budget, how are you going to manage another thousand? I mean, depending on what people's mortgages look like, right? Uh, a quarter point's a big freaking deal. And that dream gets right? farther and farther gets away. Farther and farther away. And I think away. about you because you've got now you've got a. a I would yeah. say a big family, four people. Yeah. Like we're looking at our grocery costs, and I'll just be upfront. Like I think we 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 used to spend around 150 to 175, 200 max every week. Yeah. For the two of us. Yeah. And now we've seen that incrementally go up sure. to like 250, 275. And I know I'm saying this, and families they're spending five, six, whatever to feed their whole family. But like it's the little things, those little chips away yep. at your savings, at your uh, weekly costs that are just drowning. Summer vacation. People. Yeah. Or, you know, eating out, like going to the movies, like all those types of things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, hey, maybe it's going to prompt you to, to look for a new job. Uh, a survey by Monster.com shows that 96% of workers are looking for what are looking for a new job in 2023 julie bauke in 90 seconds on that this conversation is presented by our friends at california closets they have a service that you may not be aware of and we want to tell you all about it you can transform your garage 
with custom storage. Yeah, that's right. California Closets is about a whole lot more than just closets. Uh, Don't get me wrong. They are killing it on the closet front. But of course, they do installations, including garage makeovers that will take your breath away. Premium garage organization is now touched down right here in Alberta. These garages are 100% custom designed to fit your needs and to fit your budget. They're custom crafted for Canadian homes. They have specific elements. They can integrate specific needs. If you're driving an EV, why not put in a Tesla charging wall? If you want the extra installation, if you want your garage to be wider, if you want to elevate the aesthetic of it, why not go with California Closets? It's a professional installation by their expert team that offers best in-class customer service and, of course, warranty as well. Transform your space. Meet with their designer. They'll give you a virtual 3D design. It's custom manufactured for you. And then their professional installers complete the job. They don't leave until you're completely satisfied. You can check out what they're doing exactly today at CaliforniaClosets.ca. Hey, speaking of groceries, Friesen Brothers knows that family budgets, a lot of times they're more rigid than we'd like, which is why they want to provide you with the opportunity to save as much as possible. The first of the month, it's coming up in less than a week. The first of February, Friesen Brothers is offering 15% off grocery bills of $75 or more. 15% off is a big deal on the monthly shop. We encourage you to visit your local Friesen Brothers in 16 different Alberta communities for more than 65 years. They have been Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. Well, this survey, these results knocked my socks off, and we reached out to Julie Bauke right away. A whopping 96% of workers say that they're looking for a new position in 2023. Why? Well, largely because they're looking for bigger paychecks. Julie Bauke is the founder and chief career strategist with the Bauke Group. She helps people land their dream jobs. Uh, She spent more than 15 years working in HR, and you you may have read her book, Stop Peeing on Your Shoes, (laughs) Avoiding the Seven Mistakes That Screw Up Your Job Search. It's a pleasure to welcome Julie back to the show. Thanks for making time for us, and a good morning to you. I think we have you on mute, Julie. We just want to make sure we can hear your voice. There you go, loud and clear. You know what? There is so much in this topic to unpack. We could go for hours. So I'm the, I, I, you were the first person we thought of when I saw these survey results. 96%. So basically everybody is looking yeah, for a new job much, this year. You can't get to 96% on anything. And there's so much here. I mean, obviously, 96% of people aren't going to change jobs. But what it is, it's a reflection of how frustrated people are with a lot of different things. And so the cost of living has been rising higher than people's salaries. They are seeing people being hired around them to do the same jobs that are making more than they are. Um, People are just unhappy with the way they're being treated at work. They're being forced to go back to work and they don't want to. I saw something uh, this morning that was really kind of funny. It was a story on rage applying. And what it means is people are so angry with their current situation. They're just applying for everything they can. And it's just there's we are living in this crazy time in the workforce where you will see stories side by side. All these companies laying off thousands of people, yet 96 percent of people want to change jobs. 
those two situations have never existed side by side before. Separately, yes. Together, never. And so everybody, including leaders and organizations, your manager, human resources, everybody is so confused. And it's it's not a one size fits all. I'll tell you what to do top down. Let me pound my fist on my desk and tell you to just shut up and get back to work. It's not where we're living anymore. Back in my day, when I was in my 20s, you know, we sort of did what we were told. But these generations were like, no, no, dude, not doing it Mm. because they have options. And so now you put technology, other options, all kinds of side gigs. It's it's the workforce is changing. The world of work is changing so rapidly, but it's kind of like that. You don't necessarily want to see the sausage being made because it's really, really ugly. Yeah. And and so you've got people right now that are, that are and, and, you know, I'm not sure if you heard our previous conversation there with Stephanie Hughes, but like the Bank of Canada increases interest rates again, uh, trying to clamp down on inflation. So you're going to have people today, like literally today, sitting around their dinner table or they're at work and they're going to be saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know where yeah. I don't I don't know where we're going to come up with the extra 400 bucks. I don't know where we're going to come up with the extra grand a month. Yeah. Right. And so it makes sense that people are shopping around. But at the same time, you kind of wonder people are looking. At, I mean, I mean, just even in the media business, Julie, we're looking at what's happening right now with some with some of the big newspapers, some of the big radio stations. That's just one example of many sweeping layoffs. And so you have to imagine a lot of people, honestly, the quiet voice in their head is going, don't make too much noise. Just keep your job steady, Eddie. You know, we'd love to do that rage applying, but we want to make sure we protect our nest egg, right? I mean, how do you reconcile the two? Yeah, you know, so that was absolutely, you're describing 2008. Mm. So that was a time in which people held onto their jobs at all costs, even to the cost of their health, their relationships. You know, it was, please, sir, can I have another? I mean, that was really kind of the way people looked at jobs back then. But we have a new generation here who said, you know what, I'll be fine. They're less willing to put up with poor treatment at work. And so when you look at why people, why 96% of people are, they are, they are looking for more pay, obviously, because of the cost of living. And they also want work that helps them live their whole lives. They want work that gives them more control over the big picture of their lives, because think about it. Technology is is really the culprit here. And I say that loosely, but back in the day, you when you left work at five or six o'clock, if your boss wanted to get a hold of you, they had to get out the phone book and look up your home number. And they didn't do that. Mm. So now we have the ability to be connected, unfortunately, 24-7. And so that has driven the fact that work and life are not separate entities. The work and our personal lives are not separate entities anymore. And so people are not only looking to make the money they they know and believe they deserve because of what the market's telling them. And in a lot of cases, the people you have who've been left behind, who are working their tails off, are getting less than people you've just hired to do the same work. And guess what? They know it. And so they're feeling they're feeling taken advantage of. So they want to get out and make more money. But at the same time, you're like, I'm not willing to work you know, 18 hours a day either. And so you've got this kind of and then you've got gender and you've just got so many things going on here that, I, you know, I, I, I absolutely understand both sides of the desk, though. 
because employers are really trying to figure out how do we attract, retain, and engage people? Because frankly, managers, leaders of organizations have still been operating in the, I'll tell you what to do, I'm the boss, I have a bigger title, for years, because we still have boomers in the market, we still have older Gen Xers in the market who still haven't gotten the message that these people do not respond to the stick. They might respond to the carrot, but they're looking for a different carrot than you're used to providing. Let me ask you this. I'm really grateful for you know interaction with our live audience. And Cactus Sheriff on our live chat says, rage applying used to be called actively job seeking. Attach <laughs> says attaching a negative term is just corporate maneuvering to make yep. people looking for better seem like a bad thing. How would you respond oh, to that? Thank you. Love that. So I, I roll my eyes every time you see a new phrase like that, quiet quitting, quiet hiring, mm. um, rage applying, agree. And so much of this is simply clickbait. Even the term quiet quitting makes it sound like, again, it puts all the blame on the people. But when you look into what quiet quitting is, it's simply setting boundaries mm. around what I will and won't do. So think about it. I've got four people in my department. Typically, I have four people in my department. Two of them have quit. There are two of us who are still here. So what do employers do? They say, well, I guess you all are just going to have to pick up the slack because I'm trying to save money in my budget and I can't find anybody to do the job. Or they go out and hire somebody, as I've said, for a lot more. So the two people sitting there, the phrase quiet quitting sounds like they're just sitting there doing their nails and hanging out on TikTok. But quiet quitting really means setting boundaries in what you will and won't do. And frankly, I think that is a beautiful thing. Now, if your thing is, you know, I, I know somebody who got fired because during COVID, they were working two full-time jobs. And what happened, how they got caught was they had the wrong company's background on oh. their Zoom calls. And the, the other company went, huh. And they start digging in. Turns out the person was double dipping in two full-time jobs. That's wrong. I will never support that. But you can't, you, know, you do not, as an employer, your employees are not indentured servants. And they have lives and they have boundaries. The difference is this younger generation is going to claim it where we didn't. And what's so interesting, Ryan, is we have so many clients now who are older, who are in Gen X, boomers and they're like huh wait a minute maybe these younger generations have the had the right idea all along because we've all been through the give 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 and then you're on the layoff list and this whole concept of loyalty on either side again makes me roll my eyes and so what i say to people is look you've got to accept the fact that your company wants you until the day they don't and you have to act accordingly. You need to stay in your job until it no longer makes sense for you to be there. Then feel free to move on. I've had so many people say to me, well, you know, they really need me. And I always say, I don't care. This is about you. You tell me they need you. You can operate with integrity, but you have to look out for yourself and your family first. Mm. And if it makes sense for you to stay where you are, fantastic. But if it makes sense for you to move on, you need to do that without guilt, 
without feeling like you're letting anybody down. And just because you have to look out for you and your family and your career first. This is an interesting point here from Justin, who says, uh, you know, I, I guess talking about maybe perhaps his own workplace, but, you know, talking about, I guess, sort of like a, uh, the culture there. Right. And, and, and how people can be influenced and basically saying that that, uh, you know, before back to work plans were announced by this particular company, I don't know which one it is, doesn't matter. There was a round of layoffs announced. And I know that this is kind of the time where a lot of businesses, I was talking to a buddy just yesterday, won't name his company, but he, he, he said, I, he, you know, he wasn't, ah, I don't know if I should say this. I feel like I'm telling tales out of school, but he said he kind of feels like the Grim Reaper because he's been tasked with letting some people go. And at the same time, he's been tasked uh, by the owners of his company to order people back to the office. And he said that the layoffs have been made a little bit easier because some people are pushing back on returning to brick and mortar workplace, which is kind of have, I mean, it basically means that they're gone. And right. uh, there is this kind of, I don't know if I want to call it intimidation, but, but, but those two factors play together, don't they? To send a message yeah. to people. Yeah. You know, it's, it, and the truth is, Ryan, there has never been a time unless a company was absolutely going out of business when a company hasn't been hiring and laying off at the same time. Because it's sometimes the people you have in the roles at your company are not the right people to move forward in your new direction. And so, yeah, so the people they're having come back to the office, those are people, at least at this point, they've put an ultimatum out there, maybe, and have said, you come back or you're gone. And it's sort of like, because as you'll see over here, we're laying people off. Do not, as, and I know this is easier said than done. Do not let that cloud your decisions about your career. Mm. You have to decide, look, if you're sitting at home and you're saying they're ordering me back to work and that's going to mess up everything else that I have going on in my life, it is time for you to start putting yourself out there. My advice to everybody, everybody, even if you are so wildly career happy, your head explodes. Your resume and your LinkedIn profile should be ready to rock and roll every minute of every day. Your LinkedIn profile should be robust. It makes you findable. For back in the old days, you had to mail your resumes out in those fancy little envelopes. But now we're in a place where when your stuff is out there, you know, you are findable. Make yourself findable. Get a really good LinkedIn profile that really tells your story because it's it's sort of like your spark notes or your cliff notes or your summary to the world. And it makes you findable. You should always be ready to move on. And what happens is people get so overwhelmed by the idea of a job search that they decide they can put up with, with, you know, they'll put up with so much. And, you know, back when I used to work exclusively, I worked for a big global career services provider, outplacement firm. And it was fascinating to me how many people would say to me, after being let go, a couple weeks later, having had time to process it, I I'm going to say 80%. You know, they did me a favor. I wasn't huh. happy. I'm, you know, I'm, I know I'm going to be better off, um, but I just got lazy and I just wasn't willing to work. And I'm like, that's probably why you showed up on the, the layoff list. But don't let it get to that. Because when someone else makes that decision for you, it comes with an extra layer of hurt and 
just stuff you don't need to go through. You know, when you say, you know what, this job, this company isn't working for me anymore. I've evolved and this doesn't work for me anymore. There is such power in taking control of that mm. and saying, yeah, I'm not going to take it anymore. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go do something else. I'm not going to rage apply because that implies that kind of you're out of control, frankly. And I don't think that's true, but it, it does mean you fed up and you're not going to take it anymore. But when you do it intentionally and strategically and with a plan, our process is define, get, own, think, plan, execute. Don't start a job search till you know what you're looking for. Uh, you will land powerfully and you'll position yourself for success in the rest of your career. The worst thing you can do is put your head down and hope for the best. That's not a good plan in any part of life. Why would it be at work? Yeah, and people got to be careful too, right? Like a friend of mine is a CEO at an agency, and and she's telling me that they they have access, you know, and and they utilize a a certain platform. It's not LinkedIn, but it's similar. And like she's seen employees of hers on there actively announcing that they're looking to leave and like you got to be careful about it you got to be strategic about it and that's of course yeah. going to influence her opinion or her decisions as she's managing her workforce right so so this could be this will be my wrap-up question to you julie we're talking to julie balky but this this could also have been the lead-off question which is what's the best advice for somebody that 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 is looking for something new? I mean, what what should you consider besides salary? Like, what's the best strategy? What 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 are a couple of, of of foundational principles that you would say people need to keep in mind? Okay, so first of all, I want to address what you said on LinkedIn. You have the option of putting the green circle around that says "open to work." Don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Um, but if you're employed, is, right? Yes. Um, unless you've already been told you're going to be laid off. So besides always having your resume and your LinkedIn profile up to date, don't start until you have a plan. So chapter one of my book is called jumping into the fire without the, without your fireproof undies, which means you need to be ready to answer three key questions. Tell me about yourself, why are you looking to leave and what do you want to do next? And the day you get laid off or let go for any reason, Trust me, you are not ready to answer that question. And so the thought of when you think about, we say think, plan, execute. You see how execute is third? So don't execute a job search until you know what you want more of, what you, what you want less of, what your next ideal role looks like, and you have a plan to get it. And it's the anything else is throwing against the wall to see if it sticks. And this is actually what I lay out in my book because I spent so much time helping people fix their mistakes and try and go back and have to start over. So here's your question. Here's the question to ask yourself if you're thinking about starting a job search. Why do I wanna leave where I am? What is it that's not working for me? What do I wanna do more of? Where do I wanna do it? And what kind of organization do what you can't fit in everywhere, don't try. What kind of organization is the best fit for me right now what might that title be? You know, so get start to start to sketch out a vision on paper and your you, wherever you keep notes. What does your next best job look like? I talk about you what on a scale of one to ten. What does your ten look like? There are so many people who are afraid to even say what their ten looks like because it feels like too much. And I say, you know, what would your perfect ten job situation look like? If you put it out there, you put it on paper, you start talking to people about it, 
and you start moving toward that with every step with your LinkedIn profile, your resume, who you're talking to, your self-awareness, you know, how you're able to communicate all of this. You may not get a 10, but you'll get darn close. Mm. And so I, I'm just such a believer in that because I've been doing this work for 25 years. I know that it works. And so start with the end in mind, right? Like, like think about your GPS. You know, you don't, you don't pull up Google Maps and just say, take me anywhere that ain't this. You're not, you're going to end up in a really bad place. Sure. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? What's it look like? And then start to build your case for why you're qualified for it. You know, we get in our own way. We're our worst enemy, you know, and, and, and we are the head talk, the head trash is what keeps us from getting what we want. I find that in life as well as in our careers. Julie Balke is the chief career strategist at the Balke Group. You can find him on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, obviously online. She's the author of Stop Peeing on Your Shoes, Avoiding the Seven Mistakes That Screw Up Your Job Search. Really appreciate the, 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 the real talk on this, Julie. Have a great rest of your week. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, yeah good stuff. 96% of people. I can't believe that. Well, I can believe it, but it's probably like it's, it's, it's monster.com that did the survey, by the way, for people that want us to cite that source uh, out of interest. Uh, I, I bet I, you know, the question has got to be like, not are you actively job searching? I find it hard to believe 96 percent of people are actively job searching, but open or looking for a new improvement. I wonder if the question was sort of like somewhat ambiguous or mm -hmm. vague, like, would you like a better job? Are you open to a better job? Sorry, but I'm just updating my the, LinkedIn uh, right here. Dan, you just just ty typing up your resume, <laughs> right? I was going to say how grateful I am that you're a part of the four percent that's not not actively looking. <laughs> but you know, people like honestly probably should. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, it's not a bad thing to always be looking ahead. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad thing to dream big and have a plan. It's not a bad thing to have these audacious, massive goals. Mm -hmm. I mean, how did the people that are in the positions that we envy in a healthy way, how did they get there? By having big, audacious goals and dreams, of course. right? Yeah. And please never leave. <laughs> that conversation was presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. Man, I got a trash talk yesterday that is just, wow. Felt like I was handling, you know, like somebody like pulls the pin on a grenade and then just hands it to you. I was like, woo. You can send us your gripe, your rant, to talk at ryanjesperson.com every Friday. It's an institution on this show that's trash talk presented by, presented by local environmental services. Now, I want to encourage you to keep it local. If you're a decision maker, an entrepreneur, if you're in the business of business, and of course, you're always looking to keep your costs down, whether you're looking for a front load bin, like outside your restaurant or your retail location, maybe a big roll off bin, you know, these ones they drop off for big construction projects. Maybe you're getting your roof done. Maybe it's a big basement purge, a home reno project, an office transformation. Maybe it's general recycling. You're looking to put a program into place. Or maybe you're looking for landfill services or water hauling or vacuum trucks or portable toilets or fencing or residential services or, well, you get it. Local Environmental does it. And of course, they do it across the prairies. You can check out exactly where they operate across Alberta and Saskatchewan on their website, localenvironmental.ca. Request a quote today and start saving money. And speaking of saving money, it's kind of been the theme of today's show, hasn't it been? Today's a perfect day to stock up your freezer with cool treats for the kids and for you. The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and, of course, Sherwood Park 
have a wonderful deal in place for real talkers. All you got to do is show up at a DQ in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, or that recently renovated, that stunning store on Baseline Road in Sherwood Park. You pick up a six-pack of Dilly Bars or DQ sandwiches, and while you're in there, grab another sixer because it's buy one, get one free through to the end of the month, through to the end of January, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are hooking you up. It's buy one, get one free for Dilly Bars, dairy-free Dilly Bars, and DQ sandwiches. And I want to, this is not an ad, by the way. This is just me giving a shout out to a friend. I've been telling you guys about Graham Duty. Uh, Graham has been my personal trainer and uh, just a wonderful guy. Graham has, has taught me and, and helped me understand how to how to maximize my potential, how to, how to bring out my best. Uh, and this is just a shout out to a pal. Graham's not paying me to say this. I'm saying this with conviction from the bottom of my heart. I want you to check out GrahamDuty.com. That's D-O-O-D-Y. He's just launched something, and this is specifically for our audience members in Calgary. If you check out Primed.fit, Primed.fit, it's a new fitness class for the 55-plus Calgarian, born out of more than 25 years of, of, of working with people that have a growing interest in health while aging. What does it mean to age well? You know, 60 can look a whole lot different than it did 25 years ago. You're chasing your grandkids. You want to travel. You want to do the things that you enjoy that require physical fitness. Thanks to the science of aging, Graham understands more. And we all know more about the importance of physical fitness as we get older. So they're running a program in three locations through Calgary. A West Downtown, Central near Chinook Center, and South in Mackenzie Town, right where I grew up. The spaces are private. They're beautiful. Each class consists of an in-person class weekly, plus additional work you can do on your own. They're going to test you quarterly to help track your improvement. You can find all the details at primed.fit. I'm really proud of what Graham's doing, and I know that that's going to be of interest to Real Talkers. So I wanted to throw that out there and have you check it out at primed.fit. So I got this email yesterday from Kyle. And he wrote in and he, he said, I don't know if this email is real talk worthy, but I had something on my mind and I was about two sentences in and I thought, well, this email is definitely real talk worthy because it ticks all the boxes, John. Kyle mm-hmm. was listening to a show that we did. It prompted him to think, which is music to our ears. He was trying to reconcile what he was hearing with what he believes, with his set of values, and then he had to type it out. And that is exactly what we endeavor to do is to have continuing conversations about subjects that matter to people living in Canada. So Kyle says, I'm a longtime listener and I just finished up listening to your panel on supervised consumption services on so-called safe injection sites. That was just on yesterday's show. He says it was really good. And I had an extra high degree of interest as I just finished reading the book San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger. He says, I thought that book was also quite good and and it resonated with me because I I felt the author's perspective and and the statistics seem to be quite probable, uh, taken with a grain of salt. I've not read the book, by the way, Kyle. He says, I agreed with your panel and the track record that the all-out war on drugs has not worked and we can't keep doing it. But I don't think that the answer is the opposite approach either. He says, and you can look at San Francisco or Los Angeles or Vancouver, where, you know, what looks to be a free for all also is not working. He says, take a walk downtown Edmonton. 
There's something not working there either. And so the author, Michael Schellenberger, asks the question, what is the answer? You know, maybe we should look at some cities that had huge issues and then overcame them. Cities like Amsterdam or Munich or even New York. He says Edmonton could stand to ask New York how to do mass transit as well, but that's a different email. Point taken, Kyle. He says those cities took a mix of both approaches. You know, not a free-for-all necessarily. You can't just have open drug markets and like shit on the sidewalks. You know, you'd be ticketed and arrested and at that point. When you are, you'd get assessed. You know, what's your issue? What's the root cause of, of your homelessness potentially or your addiction? Because every person's circumstance is different. You know, a woman that may be homeless or that's fallen into, let's say, the sex trade because maybe she ran away or tried to escape from an abusive spouse is not in the same circumstance as somebody with, for example, a mental illness or maybe an indigenous person dealing with intergenerational trauma. Not one policy should be the exact same for all individuals. Once it's determined that you know what you require, what you need, you can start working with housing supports or social services. You can be provided the appropriate resources, but there has to be a demonstration of accountability. You know, for example, while you're staying in a shelter, you've got to pee clean on a whiz quiz for two weeks straight. You know, if you can do that, then you can be placed in a group home with a shared bedroom. If you can stay clean for a month and try to get a job, well, that sends a message too. let's get your own place. And let's help you aid or be aided rather all the way until you're really back on your feet. Kyle says it's like 90s kids and trophies. You know, they meant nothing because everybody was getting them. If we want human beings to truly have their dignity and self-worth, then it's like anything in this world. You got to work for it. You got to push through the struggle. But don't worry, we'll help and we'll provide coaching and supports. But it still requires individuals to put in the work if they want to break a cycle. Not from Kyle. You don't have to agree with him. You don't have to disagree with him. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I appreciate Kyle making us think and letting us know what's on his mind. I'm going to put that in contention for the email of the month. That's, of course, something that we award every month right here on Real Talk, and the winner receives an official Real Talk studio mug, obviously for free, if you'd like to get your hands on a Real Talk Studio mug, a snapback, a toque, a t-shirt, a vinyl sticker, you can check out our merch page at ryanjesperson.com. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we have two Real Talk roundtables presented by our friends at Urban Timber, back-to-back. The first one's going to be emotional heavy lifting. We're going to talk about sexual abuse and sex assaults. In the province of Alberta, they're up, way up. A horrific story out of Lethbridge. We're going to get into it. And then this new political action committee, Progressive Pack. Who's behind it? Why is it here? And what does it say about the NDP? Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. 
Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.